You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Welcome, everybody. Uh, you are, we are here on location from Earth City, Missouri, as I'm in my car. Um, but we have with us a very special guest today, Dr. Gregory Popchak, and I will provide a more full introduction of him uh, right after Father Peter leads us in prayer. Father Peter? name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Jesus taught us to call God our Father, and so we have the courage to say, Our Father, Father who art in heaven, heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy, name. thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Give, give us this day our, day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but to us from evil. Amen. Saint Gertrude, pray for us. Saint Margaret of Scotland, pray for us. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Welcome. Well, I'll um, introduce myself real quick. Uh, I'm Dr. Sebastian Mafu, professor of interdisciplinary studies at Holy Apostles College and Seminary in Cromwell, Connecticut. Uh, we have with us today a uh, very delightful speaker uh, for our course PAS 92 Exemplary Practices in Catholic Teaching and Learning. His name is Dr. Gregory Parker. I'm going to read a short description. So um, uh, I'm navigating my iPhone. But uh, Dr. Gregory Popchak is the Executive Director of Astral Solutions Institute an organization dedicated to helping Catholics find faith-filled solutions to tough marriage, family, and problems. He is also the executive director of the Peyton Institute for Domestic Church Life, an apostolate of Holy Cross Family Ministries, dedicated to promoting the well-being of Catholic family life and spirituality through professional training and original research. He and his wife, Lisa, were recently appointed to serve on the USCCB's National Advisory Board for Marriage and Family Ministry. Uh, Dr. Popchak, welcome. Thanks, Sebastian. Uh, I just want to make sure, and you were cutting out a little bit when you were reading the introduction. Can everybody hear me okay? I can hear you fine, yes. Great. And uh, if you haven't muted, then please uh, do that. And then I'm just going to give you just a quick uh, uh, logistical issue. We we had, uh, I mentioned before most of you got on the call, we had a tree fall in the house yesterday, so uh, no, no serious damage, but a lot of workmen are using chainsaws, cutting things up. So it should be relatively quiet here, but just in case, you'll know. Uh, so there's that. Um, I, you know, I, I prepared a few comments, so I'll, I'll, I'll deal with those first. Um, and then I thought we could use the balance of time for some Q&A, because this is a fairly popular topic, uh, you know, and, and a, lot of, a lot of pastoral questions especially evolve out of this. Um, just to give you a little bit of background on, you know, my perspective on this or how I approach this, um, you know, most of the people who speak on this topic are, are either theologians or pastoral ministry folks. And, uh, you know, my primary background is in therapy as a, as a clinical social worker, a pastoral counselor. Um, and, and, I, and I suppose a practical theologian, but really most of my work and my experience is in the trenches with people who are dealing with these issues. Um, and so it's, it's not just academic to me. Um, I, I really see 
this not just as an important teaching, and we're talking about sexuality, of course, uh, not just important teachings of the church, but as a real path to healing. Um, and, I, and I'm really blessed and honored to be able to accompany both individuals and couples um, as they wrestle with this in their lives and have been truly um, excited to see just how freeing the church's vision of love and sexuality truly can be. So for me, it's not just an academic thing. It, it really is, uh, it meets people where they're at, this teaching. Uh, and even though it's as controversial as it is and, and so difficult to, uh, I think, uh, teach it well or explain it in ways that, that um, people can really get, uh, I think it's probably one of the most important things we can do, uh, especially uh, with this, this new generation, if we, if we really want to evangelize the culture. So uh, with that, I, the, the first thing I want to say, just kind of up front, I think it's important uh, to recognize that, that when we talk about sexuality as, as Catholics and as, as ministers, theologians, it's, I think it's tremendously important to make sure that we're making a distinction between what we mean and what the world means by sexuality. Um, because we end up talking past each other a lot of the time. You know, we talk about the, the sacredness of sexuality, the beauty of sexuality, the, the divine purpose of sexuality. And people in, you know, in the world uh, are either just confused by that unless scratching their heads, or they can be outright offended by it because they really have no idea. Their, their own experience of sexuality is uh, so hurtful um, so rooted in use rather than love, um, so rooted in uh, mere sensuality and eroticism rather than true uh, eros, as Pope Benedict referred to it, um, that they just really don't understand what we're talking about. You know, so, so in my book, uh, Holy Sex, uh, in the first chapters, I make a, a distinction between what, I'll, what I call holy sex, um, you know, versus what I think the, we, we could more appropriately call eroticism. Um, and I think the average secular person, frankly, the average um, Catholic in the pew, uh, has their PhD or at least their master's degree in eroticism, but really knows nothing about what I'll call holy sex. And, and just to kind of do a side-by-side -side comparison, you know, if we were looking at the, the cereal box in the grocery store a shelf, you know, the thing that they have both in common is that both holy sex and eroticism are pleasurable, right? They're, they're sensual. Um, but that's where the similarities end. Where holy sex is driven by intimacy and arousal, eroticism is, is driven solely by arousal uh, and sensuality. Uh, where holy sex overcomes shame, eroticism actually causes shame and the alienation from the self and from each other where holy sex works for the good of the other and is ordered to the ultimate good of, of, of both the lovers, um, eroticism uses the other and allows oneself to be an object of use. Where holy sex is welcoming of children and promotes life, eroticism fears children and locks the lovers in a perpetual state of, of childishness or childhood. Um, where holy sex invites the lovers to share the whole self with each other, uh, eroticism withholds the self, or at least parts of the self that, that I am afraid to reveal or afraid to receive from the other. 
um, where holy sex becomes more joyful and more vital with time. Eroticism actually becomes more stagnant and boring with time. It's like a drug. You need more uh, strange and unusual uh, permutations of it to get the same high that you did in the earlier days of eroticism. And then finally, where holy sex gives life and health, um, eroticism actually invites disease and death into the relationship um, because it forces the person to be used in a manner that they were not designed to be used. You know, a toaster is great for making toast, but if you use a toaster to pound nails into a board, you're going to have an unhappy toaster. Um, you know, human beings, right, were made for holy sex. We were made for true love. We were made to, to experience all those benefits and blessings that I, I said go with holy sex. We were not made for eroticism. And when we give ourselves to eroticism, we become like that toaster that's used as a hammer. We keep, you know, trying to pound that nail into the board and we end up breaking ourselves down and our relationships because we were not created for that kind of relationship. So, you know, when the church writes about sexuality and the church writes about all these kinds of, you know, the mystery of love and all that, we tend to use language um, that we assume everybody knows what it means. So I think it's really important right up front when we're talking to make that distinction between what we're calling sex and what other people are calling sex and, and, and relabel that then as eroticism and say, look, look, you know, we understand that, that most of your experience is rooted in eroticism. We're not talking about that. We're inviting you to a deeper mystery, to something more beautiful, more life-giving, more affirming, more beautiful um, than anything that perhaps you've ever experienced before. And so we're not, we're not trying to rehabilitate this, this, this messy, broken thing that you've been clinging to. We're trying to introduce you to an entirely new reality, right? So it's, it's not about just taking eroticism and, and dressing it up and trying to make it smell of incense or something. It's about inviting people to leave behind this, this shallow, um, sad imitation of what God created for us to live in and invite people to participate in that more abundant reality that, that is um, the Catholic vision of sex and love. So with that, that first point out of the way, the need to kind of clarify our terms, I want to address, I guess, um, four, five, let me see. I'm like, uh, like uh, in Syriac, four things I say, five, six, no, I'm sorry, it's six, six small points. All right. So the first one is that as a church, we have a tendency um, to talk about sex as if it's this thing that kind of hangs on us, like a, you know, like the sign outside of a restaurant or a, you know, a pub or something. We, it's tacked on. Um, and, and we treat it as if it's this other thing. It's not all that serious, right? Why, why are we making such a big deal out of this? Um, but really, you know, sexuality is integral to the, 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 the whole person. Um, Catechism 2337 says, chastity um, means the successful integration of sexuality within the person, and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. Sexuality, in which man's belonging uh, to the body, bodily and biological world is expressed, becomes personal and truly human when it's integrated into the relationship of one person to another in the complete and lifelong mutual gift of man and woman. So it's, it's important to kind of sit right up front that we're, you know, when we're talking about sexuality, 
you know, we're not talking about just something that people do. You know, it's not just an activity. It really represents who we are as persons. The intimate core of the person is our sexuality. And when I, when I, when I, when I say that again, well, this leads to the second point. You know, I'm, I'm not just saying, you know, who we're attracted to or who we sleep with when I talk about sexuality. So sexuality, so the second point is, is broader than genitality, right? So genitality is a subcategory of our sexuality. So sexuality in its broadest sense is, is the basic human drive to pursue generativity and communion of persons. And healthy sexuality is when that basic human drive toward communion and generativity is ordered to the ultimate good of the people involved. So, you know, genitality is when that broader definition of sexuality is expressed bodily uh, through sexual intercourse. But there are other expressions of sexuality. So, for example, celibacy, right, is, not, is, 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 a, is, is an expression of sexuality. It's not the repression or the rejection of sexuality, but it's the ordering of that natural, basic, human, generative, and, and communal impulse for the good of the whole church and for the world. You know, so the celibate is called to build communion with the people that he, he or she serves and use his or her generative impulse to promote the ultimate good of, of each person. Right, so in either case, we're, we're talking about sexuality and that desire for uh, creativity, for union, for generativity, uh, and, and to wor- working for the ultimate good of, of, of each other. Um, so it's a much broader concept. In fact, this is a little bit of a tangent, but um, you know, I do. I work with couples who are struggling with infertility, for example, uh, and this becomes an issue for them because you know, they might have heard at some point the idea of spiritual motherhood or fatherhood, which, which for them, honestly, seems like a really pale uh, com- shadow of, of actual biological fatherhood and motherhood. And I can certainly understand that having dealt with un- in secondary infertility ourselves. Um, but in, in kind of studying it, you know, I realized that, you know, especially in John Paul's uh, reflection on this, it's spiritual and father, spiritual motherhood and fatherhood is primary and universal. It's essential to our call as human beings to all be motherly and fatherly and be nurturing of others. And again, very much like sexuality, uh, birth is one way to express spiritual, spiritual mother, excuse me, express fatherhood and motherhood. But it's, 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 it's secondary to or it flows from that universal call to motherhood and fatherhood. So it's, so whatever stage of life we're in, we're called to exercise that spiritual motherhood and fatherhood, uh, whether we're actual mothers and fathers or, or not. And so that's, that's again, an idea that we have to think of sexuality as a broader category than just genitality and intercourse. Um, so thirdly, developing a godly sexuality is actually essential to Christian discipleship. And, and this is, uh, I think, something that not a lot of people talk about. Uh, we, we tend to think, we tend to teach about this in terms of following the rules. Uh, we talk about it in terms of, you know, doing the right thing. Um, but we don't talk about it in terms of discipleship. And I want to read this passage from 1 Corinthians 6.15, um, I'm going to skip. I'm going to skip uh, chapter. Uh, excuse me, verses 16 and 17. I'm going to go from 15 to 18. I'll explain why in a second. But I'll just read this. So Saint Paul says, "Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Avoid immorality, 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been purchased at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, as I said, I skipped 16 and 17 there because those are the verses about uniting yourself with a prostitute, and that's what everybody focuses on. But really, the larger issue here is our bodies are members of Christ, and our bodies have been bought at a price, and we must glorify God through our bodies, and that is part of our discipleship call. That's part of learning how to use our bodies the way they were created uh, and intended to be used uh, is absolutely essential to the Christian call. We're not just spirits walking around. You know, Pope Francis has made a lot uh, about, you know, rejecting Gnosticism and Gnostic approaches. Um, but, but we have this tendency to, I think, think very Gnostically that, that, you know, our bodies don't matter at all. I know, you know, high church Gnostics, you know, uh, were very hard on their bodies, but kind of what I call low church Gnostics, they just write off their body and say, it doesn't matter at all. As long as I say my prayers and put something on the collection plate, that I'm good, right? I, uh, you know, but, but, but what I do with my body doesn't matter. But bodiliness is essential to Christian discipleship uh, and, and learning how to, to use our bodies to love and, and to love the way God intended us to love is an absolutely essential tool. It's not just about conforming our minds to Christ or conforming our hearts to Christ. It's about conforming our bodies to act in accordance to the will of God. Um, you know, pastors can often be dismissive of, of sexuality and the teachings of sexuality of the church, um, believing that other issues are more important. In fact, Pope Francis, I think, fell into this trap um, back in September of 2019, where he said um, in an interview that was published in the uh, La Civilta Catolica, uh, we focus on sex, and then we do not give weight to social justice, slander, gossip, and lies. The church today needs a profound conversion in this area. Uh, once a Jesuit, a great Jesuit, told me to be careful in giving absolution, because the most serious sins are those that are more angelical, pride, arrogance, dominion, and the least serious are those that are less angelical, such as greed and lust. And I, I find I, I I understand what he means, but I find this, this sort of attitude kind of problematic, frankly, because we, you know we are not angels, we are not spirits, we are embodied, ensouled persons, uh, and we're not. And 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 what affects our bodies affects our souls, and what affects our souls affects our bodies, um, and it kind of this idea inadvertently, I think, goes directly against the entire point of being a Christian person. Because why are we Christians in the first place? What is the point of Christianity? I was actually having this conversation with my 14-year-old daughter. I'd taken her to breakfast, and we were sitting next to a, a couple of women who were uh, having a very passionate conversation about how they felt judged by somebody um, who was in their church. And, you know, they just kept saying, well, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good person. How dare they tell me how, what to do and how to live? I'm a good Christian. And, I, and I, we were chuckling about it. And after they left, I, I said to my daughter, you know, it's fine to, to laugh about that, but, but let me ask you, what is the point of being a Christian? Like, why, why are we Christian? And, and she said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you heard those ladies just talking. They're, the point of being a Christian for them is being a good person. But can you be a good person and not be a Christian? 
And we kicked that around a little bit, and we agreed that, yeah, you can be a good person without being a Christian, without even being a believer in God at all. Right? Uh, and then I said, well, what might be some other reasons that people want to be Christian? And we, we kind of hit on this idea that, that uh, either the prosperity gospel or that God is going to kind of save us from bad things. So sometimes people are become Christian because they, they want an insurance policy against bad stuff or a promise that good stuff is going to happen. Uh, we talked about that a little bit and what's wrong with that idea. And then we kind of exhausted those things. I said, well, so what is the point of being a Christian? And she was like, well, to, to, to love God. Well, yeah, but, but why do we love God? What is, what is, why does God want us to love him? Um, and we kind of got around to it finally where the whole point of being a Christian is to learn how to love. You know, we, we feel love in our hearts. Every single person has love in our hearts for other people. But we have no idea how to love each other in a way that's actually loving. And we certainly have no idea how to love each other in a way that God wants us to be loving. And the entire reason that Jesus came was to show us what it means to love with our whole selves, our bodies, our minds, our souls, everything, how to love authentically. And we follow him so that we can learn how to love with our minds and our hearts and our bodies as well. So the whole point of being a disciple is, is coming to God and saying, I want to learn how to love the way you want me to love, not just with my, well, yes, with my mind and yes, with my heart, but yes, with my whole body. And so when couples come to the church for marriage, rather than rubber stamping what they've already decided to do, I think it's really tremendously important to, to, to teach them. And I, I write this in For Better Forever, A Catholic Guide to Lifelong Marriage. We need to do a better job of sending the message that, look, what you're coming here to do is to say that you feel love for each other, but you have no idea how to really love each other in a way that's genuinely loving and a way that reflects the way God wants you to love each other. And so if you're coming here to the Catholic church, to this parish to get married, what you're doing is you're saying, I want to spend the rest of my life apprenticing to this Catholic vision of love so that we can really learn to love each other, not just the way we feel like loving each other, but the way God wants us to love each other. And I believe this place has the best chance to teach me all of that. And so I'm making this public proclamation that I love this person and I want to love this person the way the church says I'm supposed to love this person because that's the way God wants me to love that person. And that means giving my whole body and my mind and my heart to this process of learning how to be a Christian disciple and love the way God wants me to love. That's very different from just following the rules of, of not sleeping with people before marriage and, follow, and doing NFP. This is, this is an invitation to a deeper experience of what like, living the Catholic vision of love and sex really means. And, living that, and it's all tied to discipleship. So, you know, I, I take real issue with that idea that, you know, sins against the sixth commandment aren't all that serious, because I think that's like saying being a disciple really doesn't matter all that much. That's what I hear when I hear that kind of a statement. Right. Because it's, this is this is the teaching of church. The church's teaching on sexuality goes to the heart of what it means to be an embodied, loving person. What else is Christianity about? Uh, my fourth point is that that cultivating a godly sexuality is actually key to a healthy Christian spirituality. So, in Deus Caritas Est, Pope Benedict writes. You know, it's a famous quote. Um, Christian faith has always considered man a, a unity in duality, a reality in which spirit and matter compenetrate, and in which each is brought to a new nobility. True eros tends to ride, rise in ecstasy toward the divine, to lead us beyond ourselves, 
Yet, for this very reason, it calls for a path of ascent, renunciation, purification, and healing. And the spiritual piece of this is that last part, that living the Christian vision of love and sex is a path of ascent, renunciation, purification, and healing, just like the whole path of discipleship truly is. And I think, I mean, this is true for all Christians. As I said, sexuality doesn't just apply to to lay people. It it, it applies to celibates as well. Um, But for lay people in particular and married people especially, I think the degree to which we can say we have a healthy spirituality is the degree to which we also have a healthy sexuality. And, And without that attitude, okay, it's too easy to have a purely externalized spirituality that kind of becomes, I don't mean that, well, I'll, I'll qualify it in a minute. It, 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 we can have this externalized spirituality that treats our faith as kind of a glorified social welfare project. Okay, now what I mean by that is, is we think, and, and there's nothing wrong with social justice. We need to build the kingdom of God. We need to attend to the poor. We need to, 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 to welcome the immigrant. We need to do all those things that are part of the gospel. But those are things that are about other people. Right? True Christian charity and, so, and service comes from an ethos of love that begins inside me, where I'm really reflecting, what does it mean for me to be a loving person? And how do I order my relationships with that Catholic vision of love that then extends to, well, it begins in my heart and my mind and my body, extends to my wife and my children, and then grows out of there to my community and to the world. That's what an ethos of love is. I don't save my, I don't, I don't save myself at all, but I especially don't save myself by pretending that I'm perfectly fine as long as I go out there and help people enter into the middle class. And that's a mistake that I think a lot of us make. The true conversion and true mission begins with an internalized work on myself to say, what is this ethos of love that drives all that social service work that I do, that social justice work that I do? It's rooted in that my dignity as a person, right? Jesus says in Mark 12, 31, love your neighbor as you love yourself. But I can't love myself if I'm constantly committing offenses against my body, which is what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, what I did, the passage I read a moment ago. And likewise, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, if I speak in human and angelic tongues, but I do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I hand my body over so, it may be, so I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. And people read this and they think that it's just about what I do for other people. But if, but when, with having love means learning to love myself if God wants me to love myself first. And that means bringing my body to God and saying, Lord, teach me what to do with this thing that you've given me. How can I be that embodied loving person that allows me to serve and love my neighbor in an authentic way as opposed to just essentially building a house on sand and doing acts of service, but from a very broken in, in unhealthy place that doesn't facilitate real integration within myself as well. To be a Christian disciple is to reject the world's vision of love and to spend one's life learning to love as God wishes us to love each other. And that begins with a healthy understanding of the integrative nature of loving oneself and then extends to an authentic love of neighbor and the world. Uh, fifth, um, the Christian vision of sexuality isn't inside baseball. 
It's actually a key to spreading the gospel in the modern world. You know, a lot of pastors are afraid to talk about this because, well, they think about it as just, it's the rules. It's, it's something that we can talk about, you know, in the family, but it just turns everybody else off. So I'm, I won't belabor this except to share a story. Several years ago, I was presenting at the uh, Catholic Society for Social Science, or Society for Catholic Social Scientists. And I was, it was, they were meeting at St. John University in Queens. And I was, uh, I was actually speaking on my book, Holy Sex. And um, I was in the bar at the hotel across the street from where we were meeting. Uh, it was like, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon. There was literally nobody in there. And I was nursing my iced tea and, and uh, sitting there working on my talk. And the waitress came over. It's like, well, so uh, you out of town? You're from out of town? Yeah, yeah. What are you doing? I'm giving a talk. Oh, really? What's it on? You really want to know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's it on? Um, I'm talking about it's. It's. I'm talking to the Society for Catholic Social Scientists on on holy sex. The Catholic my book, the uh, the Catholic Guide to Toe Curling, Mind Blowing, Infallible Loving. And she looked at me kind of funny, and she said, "I didn't think that Catholics could do that." <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, you know, we, we chuckled about that and she went away a little bit and she came back and, you know, so like, what's your talk about? And I started talking about how, you know, the, the opposite of love isn't hate, that it's actually use. Um, and that, that if we're going to live a healthy sexuality, that we need to truly love and receive each other and, and love each other freely and totally and faithfully and fruitfully. And what does that really mean, you know, practically speaking in our lives and, you know, that, that when we're in a loving relationship, it, it should it should help us be more of ourselves and, and help us to grow and, and feel safer and, and stronger and, you know, all, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and, and she said, oh, oh, interesting. And then she went away and <clears throat> excuse me, came back in a little bit. And she said, you know, I've been living with my boyfriend for a while. And, and you know, I just, you know, those things you were saying just really, you know, that, that seems kind of different than what I'm used to hearing about what we're supposed to expect from relationship. And I said, yeah, well, you know, that, that's probably true. And we ended up talking about that a little bit more. And, you know, it was a really interesting conversation over the course of a couple of hours, you know, little, you know, she'd come back to refill my tea and she'd have another question, you know, and, and then she'd go away and she'd come back and you know, another question. And I have no idea um, what, what, what that conversation ultimately did for her, but I know it planted a seed. And I know that that conversation itself surprises a lot of people because, again, you know, when you think about how do you evangelize people, the first thing that most people don't think about is, well, we should talk about the Catholic vision of love and sex. But that vision is attractive and it's exciting and it's interesting because it's what all of us want and it's all of what all of us long for and it's what very few people actually have. And if we can present that not just the Catholic vision of love and sex, not just as a, a bunch of rules or inside baseball or a bunch of thou shalt nots, but rather as the answer to the question that we're all asking, you know, how can I finally experience a love that doesn't make me feel lacking for the experience of it? How can I finally experience a love with somebody that, that allows me to, to give all of myself to them without being afraid and, and to receive all of them without being terrified. How, how can I be vulnerable in a healthy way that, that allows me to be real um, and not be taken advantage of? We have the answers to those questions, but we don't talk about any of that. 
because, oh, it's just inside baseball and it's a bunch of rules. If, if we want to teach this and we want to convey this, we need to approach it uh, as a very powerful evangelistic tool that reaches into the hearts of every single person on the planet uh, and, and gives the answers to the questions we're all asking for. Which leads to my last point, again, which, which is that it's got to be a positive message and not condemnatory. You know, most of the time when we approach this, as I said, it's, it's all about, you know, you should stop living together. You shouldn't sleep around. You should stop doing that. And those are all true. Those are all true. But I think that it, how we phrase that question or that comment is really important. And I think we need to approach it less from the you're doing it wrong perspective and more from the, you know, I see what you're looking for. And I'd like to invite you to more. If, if you, you know, uh, it, it, I heard a story uh, as a homily a long time ago about, you know, where the pa- pastor told this sort of apocryphal story about this woman who, who brought a jar of peanut butter and jelly onto a cruise ship because she didn't, was afraid she wouldn't be able to afford all the other meals. So she sat in her cabin every day and she just made herself peanut butter and jelly sandwiches until the end of the cruise when she got off and, and they asked her if she enjoyed the food, and she just told them, well, I just ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches the whole time because I was afraid I couldn't afford the." And the, you know, the cruise director said, well, the, the meals were free the whole time. Why didn't you take advantage of the banquet, right? It's just like this. You know, it's a, it's, you know we can say to people, look, peanut butter and jelly is fine if that's what you're into, but, but we, there's this whole banquet over here that we, I'd like to introduce you to. Um, why don't you come over here with me? And I think that's the attitude that we have to have about teaching this a Catholic vision of love and sexuality. It's not, uh, you know, it's not just, you know, don't eat that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Shame on you for eating that peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Why are you locking yourself in your room and eating peanut butter all day? It's, there's a banquet over here. And when you're tired of peanut butter and jelly, let me show you how much more there really is that you could have. And that is an appealing message. And it happens to be true. So let's not underestimate the, the power of that positive approach. It's not about glossing over the fact that people are doing things wrong or uh, th- that these things aren't gravely sinful. It's about inviting people into a more abundant kind of love. Um, and, 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 you know, when I start talking like this, um, sometimes I'll get criticism from folks who will say, well, this is the approach that, fr- that promoters of NFP have taken. You know, they, they talk about how, oh, NFP is going to make your marriage great and it's wonderful and it's so joyful and blah, blah, blah. And then people try to do it and then it's hard and they get, they, they, you know, they, they, it causes marital tension and there's arguments and there's, you know, it's frustrating and all those things. So my point in, in taking a positive approach is not to gloss over the challenge, but rather to say, look, anything worth doing anything that's really good and worth doing can be hard and can be challenging. And, and this, you know, it's, it's harder to walk from your room to the, to the, the dining room than it is to sit in your room and eat peanut butter and jelly. Okay. But the journey is worth it. And the same thing is true here. You know, any, 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 anything that's worth doing is going to be harder than the easy thing, but it's still good and valuable. And, and let us support you through this work and help you through the frustration and through the challenges as you walk this path of ascent and renunciation and purification and healing that Pope Benedict talked about. And we don't, so we don't deny the hard aspects of it, but we reframe them as part of that journey toward the more that we're all longing for. And I think if we can take those approaches, we can go a long way to really changing uh, both the way we deliver the message and how people receive the message of the Catholic vision of love and sexuality.
So that, those are my comments. I don't know how long I went there, but uh, oh gosh, okay, about forty minutes. So so let's do let's do let's do any questions that you guys might have or questions, observations, comments, criticisms. I'll, I'll turn it back over to you, Sebastian, to uh, to meet. Sure. Tomorrow with that. As a gracious host, uh, I turn it over to my guest. Uh, Father Peter has his hand up. Father Peter? Oh, I just have a question. You referred to two type of, I thought, Gnosticism, high and low. Oh, yeah. Just, oh, that's all right. It's just because uh, I sometimes teach that, I have. Could, could you just uh, clarify, and in a very practical way, because then I can borrow what you say, and I can <laughs> add to my own repertoire in explaining these, uh, these heresies. Sure. So, like, I, you know, so kind of like, you know, colloquially, I refer to the kind of high church Gnosticism and low church Gnosticism. And Pope Francis actually talks a lot about high, what, you know, high church Gnosticism, what I call, which is more that kind of classic Gnostic, Gnostic approach of, of hating the body and, and, uh, um, you know, punishing the body for, for, for having desires, right? So the, uh, you know, so, so the error that, that, that St. Francis kind of fell into earlier on where he was just really punishing his body for having any kind of sensual experiences at all, or, or was it Tertullian who castrated himself? You know, that, that, that kind of thing, right? So, uh, you know, those, those kind of Gnostic tendencies to punish the body for having those kinds of things. So, and Pope Francis has really uh, condemned that, that kind of high church Gnosticism, and he sees that as, as a problem that when we focus too much on sexuality, we, we might be indulging that high, that, that what I'll call high church Gnostic uh, tendency. What I call low church Gnosticism is, is more prevalent in the culture. And that's where the body doesn't matter at all. As long as I, I occupy my, my, my mind and my, you know, my heart with spiritual thoughts and I say the right prayers and I, and I, I donate to the collection basket and, you know, and I, and I kind of go through the motions of, of living an outwardly, uh, outward piety, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body. God doesn't care what I do in my bedroom, right? That's sort of the low church Gnosticism. It's, it's we're spirits, in, well, to use Sting, the police favorite song, you know, the famous song, we are spirits in a material world, right? We're just, we're just uh, you know, our bodies are just this bag of meat that we drag along behind us. It's an inconvenient thing that we'll be set free of one day. But what it does doesn't really matter as long as we think warm, fuzzy thoughts about God and say, say with the right prayers and uh, do the right spiritual practices. What we do with our bodies doesn't matter. So that's that's what I would call that kind of low church Gnosticism. Perfect. Thank you very much. That was excellent. Thank you. Thank you. We have with us uh, Marianne Erlakis, um, the uh, executive director of the Dignitas Personae Institute. Marianne, do you have any thoughts? I unmuted now. There we are. Oh, just thank you very much. This was fabulous. This really was. I don't have any questions right now, um, but I've got to tell you, I, I really enjoyed your presentation. Very thorough, um, and uh, I'm grateful that you're here today. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. You know, I have a thought, um, uh, Dr. Popchak, about uh, what you said um, concerning uh, the way in which people view uh, the sins of uh, the spirit or the in of, uh, of uh, pride or envy or whatever as uh, greater than the sins of, uh, say, lust or gluttony or, or, or greed. Um, that uh, comes right out of Dante in the way he structures uh, hell uh, with uh, lust being the least of the sins. Uh, in purgatory, with lust also being the least of the sentence, you uh, you work your way down to the abyss of hell, 
to the sins of pride and envy, and you start on Mount Purgatory uh, with the sins of pride and envy, and you work your way up to the least of the sins, which again is lust. So it's possible that um, that our view of uh, that or the, the Gnosticism that you see in that comes out of Dante until you get uh, to the third sphere of heaven. In the third sphere of heaven, you meet a woman named Kunisa, who, uh, when she was alive, uh, had lover after lover after lover, and never understood what it meant to um, to love the Creator in her uh, ongoing pursuit of the created thing, until the day she saw through the created thing to uh, her lover's Creator, and that transformed her and caused her to pursue that love uh, that moves the uh, planets and the stars um, in a way that she had never done before. And maybe that's uh, the kind of thing uh, that would be the fullness of, of what are um, uh, the peanut butter and uh, sandwiches that people are eating. Uh, the fullness of that banquet is the fullness of the love that the creator has for us. Um, and uh, the peanut butter an interest of a creative thing. Uh, what do you think? Am I anywhere near? Uh, no, I, think I think that's powerful, and I and I don't I don't mean to say that there's nothing there's no utility to that idea that that a pride you know is is, is worse, for example, than than lust. I, I would agree with that. I mean, with pride, we've completely alienated ourselves from from God, really, and from from grace. And so, you know, what 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 else? What worse could we do? But I I, I reject the idea that lust is somehow not serious. You know, and it is one of the deadly sins, after all. And and you know, I, so so even though you know, sensuality does point to that deeper reality of that love of God. It points to it, and it is it is a radical distortion of it. You know, and and so in, in that it is serious. It, and I think that a lot of times in, in we're talking about it, quote unquote, pastorally. We, we tend to think of those kinds of sins of the flesh as, oh, it's not just that. It's not that big a deal, really. You know, everybody, you know, it's just a thing. We kind of wrestle with, oh, well, you know. But it, you know, again, as a therapist, I see the real damage that pornography and infidelity and a whole host of other sexual sins really do to the communion of persons. It's it's not just something that we can get past. It it really, you know, sexual abuse, uh, that we've been going through, you know, as a church now for, well, you know, the whole scandal since, and, you know, and, and so we see that we look at the damage that sexual sins do and then we can say, you know, oh, well, it's not that big a deal. I think that's tremendously offensive. I also think it's, it's accidentally, and this is, this is my soapbox. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but, but I, I do think it's accidentally clerical. You know, most of what we think of as Catholic spirituality for the last 2000 years is drawn from the monastic and clerical tradition and, and lay people have sort of been invited to enjoy it, enjoy whatever they can from that table. But until St. John Paul, we've not really been able to articulate what does an authentic lay spirituality actually look like? And I think that the theology of the body, this is my argument, that the, the theology of the body, more than just about sexuality or whatever, it, it was St. John Paul's attempt to lay the philosophical groundwork of an authentically lay approach to Catholic spirituality. You know, when, when you talk about monastic and religious life, you know, you, you have, you know, a, a spirituality that's rooted in um, poverty, chastity, and obedience, right? Well, you know, and, and how you interpret that is going to differ from uh, order to order. But, you know, how do you, how do you map out 
a spirituality for lay people who are also different and, and in so many different walks of life and so many different states of life, right? You have to have something that they all have in common. Well, they happen to all have a body in common, right? And so why did God give us this body? And, and what's the spirituality around the body? And how can we build up a spirituality that's associated with the body? And, I, and, and so the theology, so for 2,000 years, we looked at the Gospels and the sacraments and, and salvation history through the lens of Christ, the high priest, which is a good lens. But St. John Paul said, well, let's look at it through the lens of Christ, the bridegroom. And, it sh- and, it, and even though nothing changes, it shifts everything all at the same time. And this, this idea of looking at salvation history and the Gospels and the sacraments and, and all of it through the lens of Christ the Bridegroom, it's a complementary lens to the Christ the bride, High Priest uh, lens, but it's one that lay people can relate to, right? And I think that, that, that um, talking about the importance of sexual sins is meant, isn't meant to condemn people. It's meant to call people to realize there's a beauty here that we've not appreciated and a spirituality that we've not appreciated and, and sexual sins, if you will, kind of um, they muddy up the lens of Christ, the bridegroom and prevent us from being able to see all of those things through that lens that, that lay people I think are especially genius at and can bring to the table. And so it, it essentially uh, cheapens the contribution that we as lay people can make to the spiritual conversation. And so I think in that sense, to say that these kinds of sins aren't important or as are less important is 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 kind of clerical, actually, and, and indulges in that that uh, clerical tradition. Yeah, can I just add into that? I was just going to say I don't. I'm not into ranking sins, but yeah. um, you know there are mortal and venial sins, of course. But sure. beyond that, uh, you know, I think there's what surrounds lust. You know, is it really seriously damaging another person? Or is it personal? I think there's a little bit different ways you look at any of the deadly sins. You know, they can, one could rank those, I suppose. But uh, my own uh, comment, unless somebody else wants to take that up, uh, or question really, is um, I I taught in seminaries for about 40 years. So um, I'm now retired, which is probably very obvious. Um, Anyway, I wish they could have, uh, every seminarian I ever taught, I wish they could have heard this talk. Uh, that Thank you so much, uh, Greg, for the really clear description and laying out the points. Um, this is what I find as a real uh, difficulty with teaching seminarians on issues uh, like this and about family life and all those sorts of things. There are two that become very distinct uh, questions or uh, concerns. One is uh, teaching, helping them to learn how to live a celibate life. And as a religious sister, I always, they have appreciated that very much. I, uh, about two days ago, I had spent uh, 60 years in the convent. So um, I could tell them a lot about living the celibate life. Mm-hmm. And, but they really did appreciate that and the possibility of it although they always claimed it was easier for women than it was for men. I don't know about that. And so there was, there's that. Then on the other side is what they need to learn to speak with couples, married and not, and, you know, preparing people for marriage uh, to understand sexuality in some of the ways that you described the definitions, not feeling embarrassed to talk about the issues of, of family life and of, of having sex and what that all means. And, you know, treating people well, the whole, uh, everything that goes with that. So how would you, um, 
approach uh, teaching seminarians? I know that's a huge question, but what would be a couple of clue, uh, tips that you would have that might be helpful? For, for uh, either part or? Yeah, either part. Mm -hmm. um, so qu quickly, I mean, the, the, I actually have the opportunity to, uh, to be doing therapy with, with uh, both couples and with several uh, priests uh, at the same time. And, and I'll often have these kinds of questions come up from, you know, from two sides. And it's interesting mm -hmm. uh, to be able to share that. And, and so when I, I'm talking with uh, my priest clients about this topic, you know, um, I, again, I go back to this broader definition of sexuality as, as that sort of basic impulse to be generative and, and communal, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so I'll ask them, you know, how involved are you in the, in the lives of the people that you serve? You know, how, mm -hmm. you know, and, and invariably I'll get responding, you know, I'm, I'm kind of holed up in the rectory. I'm playing my video games. I'm, I'm, I'm building Legos. I mean, you'd be amazed at the, the kind of the, but, but uh, you know, I, you know, and, and, and the more I, I kind of say, look, you know, this, 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 your struggle with sexual sins um, has to do with a longing for communion. You, you're isolated. You, you're not connecting to the people that God's placed in your life. You're not, you don't, you're not making a difference. Uh, you know, and the more you can get out there and be, you know, go to their homes for dinner and go to their kids' games and participate in the school, you know, and just be part of their lives, you're going to begin to see the, it, this temptation being easier to resist. It's not necessarily going to go away altogether, but it's going to be much easier to resist because you're going to feel that connection to others and see the difference that you're making and, and experience that communion that you're creating in your parish. And, uh, you know, obviously, you know, that, that's easy to say. It's hard to actually get people to do it and, and to get the benefits from it. But, but time and again, whenever I'm working with my priest clients who are struggling with these kinds of issues, it, this is what makes the difference. It's that connection and the communion and be and creatively engaging that ministry and seeing how they're making a difference. I'm sure you've seen that in, in your life and the lives of those you work with as well. Um, so that would be my, my quick tip for, for that first part of it. The second part, you know, I think uh, St. John Paul's uh, insight about the opposite, uh, the, the, the antonym of love being use is, is brilliant for this because, you know, I think we all struggle with the desire to use people. All of us do. You know, we, we know what that's like, right? And and I think that that um, I think it's very easy for a priest to say, you know, I, I know personally what it's like to, to use people, and 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 you know, that's what clericalism is. It's using my 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 priesthood for my own personal benefit. You know, I I you, I see you, and I see you know that you're going to buy me dinner, and I see that you're going to invite me to this thing and you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna defer to me and not not argue with me if I have an opinion you're gonna you know I, I'm gonna take advantage of that you know it's really easy to, to my priesthood is meant to be a gift where I work for your good and I love you and I serve you and I give all of myself to you the clericalism is is like lust for the for the for religious right it's where I'm gonna use you and I'm gonna use this gift I've been given to to hurt you and take advantage of you. And we all struggle with that. And, and married couples struggle with that too. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you have an opportunity to every day choose to, to love each other or to use each other, even moment to moment to love each other or use each other. And that's something we all universally struggle with. And so I think framing it in that way, you know, would allow uh, priests and religious to be comfortable talking about it because it's not just, oh, I don't have sex, so I'm not qualified. It's, no, I want to use people as much as anybody else does. You know, uh, it's, it was, I just do it differently than others do, but, but it's there. That temptation is constantly in front of every single human person. Yeah. 
Great. I think that that word using people and clericalism, associating that, uh, that would make a deep impression right now because that's so uh, much talked about. And on your first point, um, what I really like about that is uh, it's looking outward and not looking inward. And now I'm so lonely. I'm sitting here with you know nothing to do and nobody to relate with. And I think uh, I've done a lot of surveys through the years of priests and their within diocese, for example, I've been asked to do that. And priests who have relationships with others, whether they're other priests or other people, are much more likely to love their priesthood and to be really... Uh, satisfied themselves in their own lives by reaching out. So that both things. Thanks very much. Thank you, sister. Great question. Uh, Marianne. Thank you, Sebastian. Um, I had actually the same question. So I, you, you covered the question that I had too. It was a question about men in formation and what kind, you know, what, how should we approach them? And if you had any advice, so you hit everything I was going to say. Um, I've got that closing prayer if you're ready. Do you want me to go there, Sebastian? Well, um, in a moment, uh, uh, Greg, um, uh, do you have any, um, uh, any concluding uh, thoughts or anything that uh, we could take home with? Day and uh, and to talk to somebody else about um, uh, if you'd like to say anything in summary. Yeah, well, you know, just just be not afraid. You know, we we don't we don't, let's not be ashamed or afraid to to proclaim this teaching um, because it really is a, a beautiful and and freeing reality. And again, as a therapist, I see that every day in my practice, um, and, and I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to share that. That this is not just. A theory it's not just academics it's it, it it makes a real difference i guess secondly buy my book about my book and if folks would like to learn more about my ministry uh and the counseling practice they can go to catholic counselors.com catholic counselors.com well thank you for that um Greg. uh jen did you have anything you wanted to say um, the only thing I was going to um, maybe talk about more as a parishioner myself, as a parent, RCIA instructor, you know, I um, I think one of the struggles that I've seen so much uh, um, is I think priests or the seminarians, as we talk about them, and um, even people that are in all these different ministries, to learn how to talk about the topic with people in this positive light, because what you don't want is the, the the old fire and brimstone. You're you're all doing this. You're you know ninety percent of the Catholics are you know in mortal sin and coming up and receiving communion, which is serious. Except they don't even realize it. And I'm I've talked to some priests, and they they'll say people know what the church teaches about these topics. And I remember saying, you know, my sister in law said to me um and she's been uh, practicing catholic her whole life you know and she said well i knew we couldn't use birth control so my husband had a vasectomy <laughs> and so i was floored you know, you know I, gotta say, I gotta say that even that even yeah i mean that's a that's a that's a terrific example of, of <laughs> like but but let me i just it drives me crazy when i hear oh people know the church is that's like saying as a parent that's like as a parent saying you know, my kids know that they should clean their room. Mm-hmm. Now, it's my job as a parent to make sure that room gets cleaned, right? It's not enough to just tell them what the rule is. 
right. I, I, I tell them what the rule is. I pat myself on the back and I'm a good parent. Was it Yogi Berra? You know, I taught good, but they learned bad. That, mm-hmm. That's that's a, that's a dodge. You know, we wouldn't let any parent get away with that. It's like, oh, they they know they're not supposed to run in the street, but I, you know, what what can you do? Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's that's just bad pastoring. It's bad parenting, and I and I anybody who says that should be ashamed of themselves. And I don't mind well, calling. I think I think <laughs> I know as well. Some of them have told me, you know, they they haven't been instructed as to how to like, especially right now the um, homosexual you know situation you don't want to chase people out of the church but yet at the same token you know you have to put this positive light on it and uh, I mean I cover the sexual ethics in the RCIA class and and you know I had this one young fellow coming in this past um, year and he says well wait a minute (laughs) he says I have this girlfriend and we have sex are we not supposed to do that and I said well you know, and he says, but we kind of like it. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, yeah, you know. But, you know, like I said, I said, I'm just teaching you. I said, you're coming into the church as adults. You're coming in and you're choosing this. You're not coming through CCD in first grade or whatever, because mom and dad, you're coming into the church. So I'm putting out there, this is what the church teaches. And I, and I always say, you know, this is Christ. You know, we're, we're striving to get here and we're all on this road and we, it's, we have to know we're shooting for this and we're all in a different places with it and, and whatever, but to, to deny the teaching or to say, I refuse to consider this teaching, I, you know, then I don't know. Well, that's that whole discipleship point I was making earlier, that, that, that yeah. we're here to be a Christian is to say, I feel love for another person but I don't know how to love them mm-hmm. in a way that is actually loving. And, and I certainly don't know how to love them in a way that God wants me to. And so I'm mm-hmm. coming to the church so that you can teach me how to do that. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. leads back to that whole section, but I got to wrap up with this. So, so maybe we should go to the conclusion Thank prayer. Thank you. Jen. Arian, are you- sure. Okay. In the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. Amen. Dear God in heaven, thank you for the gift of meeting here today, and thank you for bringing us Dr. Gregory Popchak. Please continue to bless him, bless his work and his loved ones. Please teach us to reverence the beauty of your gift of sexuality, of sacred chastity. Teach us to love authentically. Please help us to appreciate and convey to others the genuine good of your plan for human intimacy, sexuality, and the gift of human procreation. Allow us to reverence each of these gifts with gratitude, always aware that the ultimate gift of being created in your image and likeness, destined one day to share life eternal with you. We ask this through the ever-immaculate and all-pure Virgin Mary, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank Mary, you. doctor, for being with us today. Uh, your presence with us is a real gift. Thank you very mm-hmm. much, Sebastian. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Good seeing you guys again. God bless. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye. Hello, God's Beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. 
God is always with you. Thank you for listening to a production of WCAT Radio. Please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes flight.